The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Today, as we open Genesis chapter 2, we're actually continuing our study of creation. And upon hearing this, you may be wondering how that's possible as we just finished looking at God's rest on day 7 after looking at everything he had made on days one through six. And and that's true. We have looked at each day of creation as a whole, but today in verses four through 24, chapter two, what we see is a continuation of that account in that we get a zoomed in view of some details that were not present in chapter one. Specifically concerning, and this will be a theme throughout our teaching, the beautiful design that God has had for humanity from the very beginning of time. Up until this point in Genesis, we've learned that the Almighty God created all things from plants, trees, and birds to the beasts of the field and sea creatures. We've read that He created an expanse to separate the waters above from the waters below. And we've read that He created the two great lights, namely the sun and the moon, to rule over the day and the night. And we read that he separated the dry land from the waters that were on the earth. And of course, as the climax or pinnacle of his creation, we read that he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And after all this was complete, as we've often said, he looked back on everything that he had made and he proclaimed that it was all very good. And if you read back in Genesis 1, we read about this epic account of of creation that leaves us breathless as we consider the raw power and wisdom of Creator God. And yet, as if this were not enough, we turn the page to chapter 2 and we find that there's yet more detail that God wishes to impart to his people. If you guys would read with me Genesis 4 through, or chapter 2, verse 4 through 24. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. 
And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east from Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman, because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. This morning, guys, as we work back through this text, there are four themes that we're going to be exploring. I just want to give them to you right now. If you're a note taker, you can write these down and come back to them. The first is that God has a name. There's a shift that takes place in this chapter concerning the name of God, and it's going to do us well to take notice of it. The second thing is we're going to address the nature of man, his origins, nature, his purpose. Thirdly, we're going to find that humanity has roles. And I will say that the roles that God has for the first people, Adam and Eve, are still extremely important for us to study today in 2021. And lastly, we're going to see that marriage has meaning. And before we dive in, I will acknowledge that this chapter is chock full of weighty subjects. Like reading through this over and over again, you realize that you could literally have full weekend seminars on multiple topics found in this one chapter. But these are the four things that we're going to address today. So I'm going to try to do this as cleanly and as systematically as I can. So let's get to it. Number one, God has a name. Up until this point in Genesis, Moses, when speaking of God, has used the word Elohim. In Genesis 1.1, probably a verse that we're all familiar with, when we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the word God there is Elohim. And while, of course, Moses in this passage is speaking of the one true God, Elohim is a word that's commonly used in the Old Testament to describe deities or false lowercase g gods as well. And in fact, the same Hebrew word is used in Psalm 8 to speak of angels and in Psalm 82 when speaking of humans. My point being is that this is a somewhat generic name for God or one with strength and power. And make no mistake, in the context of Genesis 1, when we read the word Elohim, 
we no doubt see a powerful creator, a supreme being who made all things. But in Genesis 2, 4, I'll read it again. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Right there, we see a shift. No longer is Moses simply using the name Elohim when speaking of the Lord, but he starts using the name Yahweh Elohim or Jehovah Elohim. Our translations say, again, the Lord God. Unlike Elohim, the name Yahweh or Jehovah is only used for the God of Israel. It's the name that he uses for himself. Check out this power statement found in Isaiah 42, 8. God says, I am the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, or Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Bottom line is this, you simply cannot take the name Yahweh and apply it to anything or anyone other than God himself. It's his name. And as was often the case in scriptures, his name is representative of who he is. This Yahweh, this self-existent, eternal deity is the one that made the covenant with Abram in Genesis 12 when he promised to bless him and bless the world through him. He was not only Abraham's God, but he was Isaac's God as well. And, and not only Isaac's, but Jacob's and all his descendants that came after him. It was Yahweh, the great I Am, who met with Moses at the burning bush after hearing the cries of his people who were in Egyptian slavery. It was Yahweh who rescued and redeemed those very people. He was the one that split the Red Sea. He was the one that cared for them and provided manna for them in the wilderness. He was the one that, that saves I love this. In Psalm 113.5, it asks this question. It says, Who is like the, capital L-O-R-D, the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? And the answer to that question is nobody. Nobody is like Him. You know what else is pretty cool about God revealing His name to us is that it shows that He's a personal God or one that can be known. John 17, 3, right? Jesus, when praying to the Father, says this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. If we're talking about some ethereal, unnamed God, it gives us the sense that we can't approach this God or know this God. That's not the case with our Lord who invites us into fellowship with Him. So in this name, Yahweh Elohim, we see both powerful Creator and covenant Redeemer. He's both almighty and involved. Powerful and knowable. Infinite, yet because of the blood of Jesus, approachable. And it's cool because as we've just read through this chapter, this, this personable God can be clearly seen as He not creates from afar, maybe like He did in chapter 1, but as He forms Adam, He literally gets His hands dirty. And He gets up, and close, up close and personal with Him as He breathes into His nostrils. 
And as we're going to see in a little bit, he protects Adam and he provides for Adam in a very intimate way. Church, first thing I want us to take note of this morning is that we too do not serve a distant, impersonal God, but instead, when we see capital L-O-R-D in the pages of our Bible, or when we see the name Jesus written in Scripture, which literally means Yahweh saves, we can remember the intimate, faithful, covenant-making, and covenant-keeping God that we serve. God has a name And it is of utmost importance. As we venture down to verse 7 again in our text, we come to our second theme for the morning, and it is about the nature of man. In chapter 1, verse 27 of this very book, we read the beautiful words that male and female were created in the image of God. But in that verse, we don't hear much about the origins of the people that he made. So if you didn't know the rest of the story, upon reading that, you might have questions like, hey, where did these people come from? How were they formed? Were they heavenly beings or earthly beings? If they were created in God's image, does that mean that they're lowercase g, gods as well? And we find clarity in verse 7 when it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The first thing that I want us to notice here is that Adam was formed of the dust of the ground. What a big piece of humble pie for the prideful. Genesis 3.19 echoes the same thing as God says, For you, speaking of humans, are dust, and to dust you shall return. Psalm 103.14 acknowledges the same truth when it says that he, speaking of God, knows our frame that we are but dust. Not to be confused with but dust. We are but dust. Kids, take note, spelling is important. I'm sorry. If you don't know, I'm a youth pastor, so I have to make dumb jokes. I just have to. It's like, oh, yeah. In light of this, though, guys, we are to be humbled. When you compare Yahweh Elohim to dust-born humans who are reliant upon God for everything, and we see that in Acts 17, 8, when Paul says, hey, in him... You live and you move and you have your being. As you see this, you start to understand with more clarity your place in this universe. It's a good thing that God put this verse in here for us to read, lest we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. These two words, of dust, prick the heart of the prideful as God brings humility to the heart that has lifted itself up. Yet, in the very same verse, there is encouragement for the downcast and the downtrodden who wrongly see themselves as worthless. Although Adam was of dust, we see that he was no accident. Instead, we see that Adam was formed and fashioned with intentionality 
that he was created for a purpose. We saw that a couple weeks ago in subduing the earth, working and keeping it, being fruitful and multiplying, and he was breathed into by God. And I want to say this morning that that same thing is true for us. As a potter carefully sculpts clay, so you were sculpted. As a woodcarver whittles away with great detail, so God did the same thing with you. Yes, you are dust, and there's humility in that, but we also need to know what Psalm 139 says, that you and I were knit together in our mother's wombs. You were knit together in your mother's womb, sculpted with intentionality and for a purpose. Listen to what God said to the prophet Jeremiah in one five, maybe a verse you guys are familiar with. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And maybe you have the tendency to think that you read this about Adam, that God had a plan and a purpose and design for his life. And you read this about Jeremiah, but you go, I don't know if that's true of me, but you guys would be wrong if you're thinking that. You might not be a prophet to the nations in the same way that Jeremiah was. But you too were formed and known before you were in the womb, before the foundations of the world, for a reason, for God's glory. Each of you, each of us, has a role to play in the advancement of the kingdom of God, in the building up of the church, to spread the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. All of us are wired differently. We have different roles to play, but as the scriptures tell us, each person in the, in the body of Christ is a different part of the body. Each is equally important. I want you guys to know that you too have a role to play. You're unique, beloved, and in the image of God, and you exist for the glory of your Maker. Our third observation of the morning is by far the hottest topic of the hour. See, we love hearing about our role in the kingdom of God. But you start talking about roles for men and women and stuff might start flying on stage. You know what I'm saying? But that's where our text goes. That's where we're going to go. Third thing we're going to look at this morning is that humanity has roles. Not just in the church, but in relationship. More specifically, in our text today, we're going to see that Adam, who was created first, was called by God to be a leader, and Eve, who was created from Adam's rib, was called to be a helper. Adam the leader, Eve the helper. And I very much intend to spend time looking at what this does mean, of course, but before we do that, 
due to the abuse of this doctrine and the use of this truth like a weapon to oppress women, we must begin by clarifying what this does not mean so we're all on the same page. The fact that Adam and Eve had roles in the timeline of their creation does not mean that Adam was superior to Eve in any way. And nor does it mean that Adam was more important than Eve in any way. Adam and Eve, men and women, both have equal worth, dignity, and value, period. As John Piper put it, that matter was settled in the previous chapter. That's information we did get in chapter 1, verse 27, when God says, male and female, it created the image of God. It's no longer up for discussion. The case is closed. As 1 Peter 3, 7 says, men and women, both fellow heirs of the grace of life. That's the foundation So now I would challenge you with that in mind as we read the rest of this chapter as we see more of God's masterful design for the people that he'd made. I I don't want us to feel threatened by this, but instead I want to be excited to see what God had in store for gender roles from the beginning. And it is important to note before sin came into the picture. So with that said, let's go back to our timeline here to understand Adam's call to leadership. And bear with me, this is a, this will take a little bit to walk through, but it's important. First thing we need to notice is that Adam was created first again. The verse we've been going back to, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Just pause and imagine this for a second, right? We see that God breathes life into him, and boom, Adam wakes up or comes to life, and the very first thing that he sees is the face of God. The face of God. And there the relationship is started As we continue to read it, it says that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And for the sake of our argument, that word put there is extremely important. When you read put in verse 9, the Lord God put him in the garden. Or verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That word put there has in it the implications of a couple things. One is rest. It has implications of protection. And all of this is happening in the context of Eden, which literally means delight. With God, in Eden, Adam had rest, protection, relationship, and delight. He had it made. And this is important, guys. I just want to... Paul mentioned that on Tuesdays and Thursdays we start reviewing this information as a team, which is pretty sweet in order to walk up here with confidence, knowing that I'm not going to say something really stupid, which is always a possibility anyways. I don't want to repeat it, but if you remember my joke from like five minutes ago. But check this out. Jeremy brought this up. Right here, Adam wakes up, and what does he see? He sees that God takes him, and he creates him, and then he 
puts him in the garden. And put means rest, and he puts him in Eden. It's protection, it's delight, and there's relationship. What is Adam seeing? He's seeing leadership. He gets to learn leadership from God himself, which is important because the very thing that God's going to call Adam to. Verse 16 is a verse that we probably all know very well. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Guys, I have quoted this verse hundreds of times in my life. There's nothing I love more than just yelling at high school kids about sin. Okay, like, it's so fun. And then, of course, God's grace. But i, I got to be honest, I've never noticed something about this verse before. I don't know how I missed it. It's, it's so clear as you read through. But, but I'd always assumed when speaking of this verse that both Adam and Eve were present at the time that the command was given. And if you read, Eve isn't there yet. And then there's no account of God ever restating this command once Eve is alive. So it's just another piece of the puzzle and you start to kind of take these different pieces of Adam's existence, the beginning, and you realize that even this right here, God giving him this command, implies that Adam as the firstborn, as the man, was given the commandment of God and was expected by God to be a leader by teaching his wife this command once she was alive. Eve, of course, was a moral being who could choose to obey God or not. But because Adam was the leader, and this is the real giveaway, he was held responsible for the moral obedience of his family in the garden. He was in charge of worship in the garden. And if you're still not convinced, then we see this clearly in the remainders of the Bible as he's held accountable for what happens in Genesis chapter 3 for the remainder of the Scriptures. You guys remember in Genesis 3, I don't want to give it away, or I don't want to steal the thunder from next week, but you have Eve and a serpent, deception, the fruit, and then boom, the downfall where sin entered the world. And when you read it, you go, yeah, Eve took the fruit, but if you know the book of Romans, Romans 5.12 says that sin entered the world through one man, Adam. In Genesis 3, 9, this scared me, guys. It says, when God came to them after they had sinned, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Listen to this. But the Lord God called to the man, and he said, where are you? He comes searching for the man. In verse 17 of the same chapter, when the Lord is addressing Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. I've got to be honest, when reading that, you're like, what does that mean? Listening to your wife is always the right thing to do, right, gentlemen? 
The point is this, though. As I heard John Piper scream this in his teaching on the very same thing that he gave in 1989, he said, Adam, here's your problem. You were listening instead of leading. I've called you to lead, and you neglected your God-given responsibilities. You were listening instead of leading. Adam, Eve ate the fruit. Why didn't you stop her? She was being deceived by the serpent. You were passively watching. And now you bear the weight of the responsibility of this. Gentlemen, the role that God gave to Adam is yours and mine as well. Which means the weight of responsibility that Adam bore is ours as well. Men, I want to challenge you. You've been called by God to lead. And please don't get leadership confused with being a misogynist jerk. I want to remind you that this is biblical leadership that we're talking about. Marked not by lording over your subjects like an authoritarian dictator, but marked by responsibility, accountability, and sacrifice. This is a call to lead by laying down your life just like Jesus did. And if you want more info on that, you can read Ephesians 5 where we're called to do that very same thing, to love our wives like Christ loved the church. That is the leadership. So I gotta ask you guys, and I gotta ask myself, as I did many times this week, how are you doing with this, men? This scares the crap out of me. Sunday night, I was listening again to to Piper preach through this passage, and by the end of it, it's John Piper for one, but by the end of it, I'm literally on my knees going, oh my gosh, and as a preacher of the word, I don't want to just say things uh, and not allow them to affect me, but in a certain way, I have to be able to preach with authority the word of God, even when I see my own shortcomings as I look in the mirror. This is so hard it's so easy to resort to passivity and selfishness as a father it's so easy to just let the chips fall where they may or let somebody else make the tough decisions for us because sometimes it's just easier to deal with the consequences than to step up and lead in the face of adversity but we just can't do that anymore the consequences of doing that are destructive Our families need us, our wives need us, and our kids need us. And if you're hearing this and you're beginning to be convicted, then I'm going to say that's a great thing, but I would warn you to not let yourself be condemned. Condemnation is of Satan. There's no more of that in Christ Jesus. But I will say this right now, through this text, through the Word of God, please let the Spirit of God discipline you as a son, as He wants to sanctify us and make us more like Christ daily. Would you 
Would you be encouraged by Colossians chapter 1, verse 11? It says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy. I don't know what it is about us men, but we always think we've got to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and we've got to be strong enough to conquer the things that are plaguing us. But right now, I would encourage you not to let shame win, but allow the acceptance that God has for you through Jesus Christ be the thing that fuels you and to find your strength, Colossians 1, in His glorious might. Wives, your husband will stand before God. I'm going to stand before God one day and give an account for the spiritual vitality, health, and well-being in my household, in your household, one day. That's the reality. Women, you're not going to stand before God and give an account for those very same things. That's His role. You don't have the role of leader, but you have an equally important role as well. Not less important, not more, but equally important. Let's read about it in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The secret's out. God knew that Adam was lacking. (laughs) He had a lot on his plate. Big responsibility. And apparently God knew in his infinite wisdom that he needed help. And not only that, but God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have lived in perfect fellowship with one another for all eternity past. And Adam, who was made in his image, was made for that kind of community and relationship. But at this point in our story, he's missing out on that core part of being human. And I will just say, in our verses, in our context, this relationship will be found in a spouse for Adam, but this relational community can be found outside or inside of marriage. Not everyone's called to marriage, including Jesus himself and Paul. But this is where we see the community and the church and godly friendship be such important parts of this communal aspect of being human. But at this point, Adam didn't have it. He had a relationship with God But the Lord knew that he was lacking. So verse 19 and 20, it says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper for him. There was not found a helper. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And here, guys, after Eve is fashioned from Adam's rib, We're introduced to the beautiful design of God as it relates to the biblical role of woman as a helper. 
What a great word. I don't know why we hear the word helper and think that it's a bad thing or a negative thing. In fact, it's a tremendous honor. Almighty God throughout the entire Old Testament uses the word helper and help to refer to Himself and His assistance of His people. Look, Psalm 33.20 says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 121 verses 1-2 through says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. Lastly, Hosea 13, 9, it says, He destroys you, O Israel, for you're against me, against your helper. God is the helper of His people. The helper of Israel. The role of woman as helper is far from a negative thing. It's in fact been given to them by God to reflect His own glory in nature. Man alone could not contain the fullness of the image of God. Both man and woman were needed for this. They each display aspects of God's character and nature. And let's just take a quick second to praise God for His infinite wisdom. Because if He made man the helper, we would all be up a creek. The woman is the perfect helper. As we go back to our story, you guys, we read it. Adam lays eyes on this woman and he's absolutely blown away. He's not seeing an inferior being, but instead he's seeing someone who will actually complete him. Someone who will provide what he's lacking Words that can be used there are are ones like matching opposites or a perfect pair. Both of equal worth, just different. And just as Adam has his role, so too Eve now had hers. Just as men will have to give an account for their lack of leadership and their selfishness and their laziness, so women, you too, will be held accountable for your obedience to Jesus. Just because your husband is going to stand in the gap and give an account for the family doesn't mean that you're off the hook for your disobedience to the King of Kings. So I will ask the hard question... How many women in this room are helping and supporting their husbands in their God-given roles instead of being to Him a continual dripping of water on a rainy day, as Proverbs 27.15 says? Are you helping your husband or you're making your life or his life more difficult? And I, I will say this right off the bat. My biggest concern is not with women. It is with men. But again, as we're sitting there as a team, we're talking through this, our own Kathy says, Mitch, don't, don't let the women off the hook. Here's the reality, women, is that your husbands need you. 
Just like Adam, your husband is lacking the responsibility that he has. He cannot do. He cannot bear without you. There's so much more to be said about the roles that man is, or God has given to men and women, but for now, I just want us to see the importance of, of gender roles and how they can be seen both in marriage and our context and also outside of marriage, right? That men and women just bring different things to the table. It's amazing how God set it up. The word that we use here often is they complement each other in a perfect way. And this brings us to our last topic of the morning, which is that marriage has meaning as we move on in our text. <laughs> and I just will say, at this point in our teaching, if you're thinking we were crazy for doing all of this in one sermon, you're totally right, but we press on because we have no option. In verse 22, in the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her the man. As God brings Eve to Adam, you start to get this image of a father walking his daughter down the aisle to be given away in marriage. Again, Adam is just floored when he sees her. This at last, verse 23, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's almost like you can hear him say, like, this is the one that my soul has been longing for. Adam's need had been made known to him as God declared that it's not good for him to be alone, that he needed to help her. And then that feeling was intensified as animal after animal passes right in front of him and he's naming them only to find that after the last ones passed by that there was not a helper fit for him out of all of them. None of them were like him. And now, Eve fashioned from Adam is brought to him and he sees that God has provided the perfect mate. And then right away we see the institution of covenant marriage between one man and one woman with God presiding over the ceremony. Adam and Eve weren't just supposed to be friends that populated the earth, but there was a plan and a perfect design for their marriage relationship that had meaning far beyond just themselves. And we start to see it in verse 24 when God says that man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. God says, I want you to leave and cleave. I want you to leave and hold fast. The word leave there, listen, implies that all other relationships with human beings on this earth now take a back seat to this one. As one commentator said, this leave is a prescription for the loyalty and intimacy that a man must give to his wife and vice versa. And if you weren't convinced about the severity of the covenant, the words hold fast are actually the same words in other places in Scripture that God uses to encourage the people to cling to Him. 
Just as Israel was supposed to stick to the Lord, so a husband and a wife are supposed to stick to each other. This marriage covenant was intended to last a lifetime. Love, commitment, sacrifice, enjoyment, intimacy, forever. What's the meaning of this beyond just ourselves? And and we see in Ephesians 5, among other places in Scripture, that, that marriage was intended to be a picture of Christ in the church. Of course, there's, there's sin. Of course, there's rebellion. We live in a broken world and we have to deal with things like divorce or separation or sin. And that, that is because of, of our sin nature, our rebellion against the living God and the brokenness of the world that came after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. But as we hold up marriage, we see a picture of the gospel as men and women lay down their lives for one another and serve one another and love one another, we get a glimpse of the love and care that Jesus has for His people in a covenant relationship. Jesus affirms this marriage covenant in Matthew 19. Paul in Ephesians 5 does the same thing. And quickly we see that the foundations that have been set here in Genesis 2 were echoed throughout the entire Bible, so much so that we know that this is still the foundation. This is still the foundation. In conclusion, guys, God Almighty, Yahweh, Elohim has had a beautiful design for humanity from the very beginning of time. From forming man and woman of dust and breathing life into them to having relationship with them and giving them commandments and holding them accountable as moral beings, it's all part of God's plan. From assigning gender roles to instituting the marriage covenant, God's wisdom can be clearly seen in the things that He has made. But it is almost comical how opposite the values of the world are when you consider the same topics that we've addressed today. It's crazy. We've read that man was created from dust with intention and for a purpose. The world wants to tell us that we're created by accident out of some cosmic soup that's evolved over millions of years. We see that Adam and Eve are lacking and dependent, that they're sustained by God, and the world would say, we don't need a God for anything, we can take care of ourselves. Glorious, complementary roles for men and women? Absolutely not, the world would say. You can be whoever you want, whatever gender you want to be. No one's going to tell me otherwise. Monogamous, heterosexual marriage, covenant and commitment. These things are laughable as the, word says, I'll ma- as the world says, I'll marry whoever I want to marry. And I'll bail whenever it gets too hard or it's not the thing that makes me happy anymore. In other words, and you guys can see this, I'm sure, as you look out, the world joins in chorus singing, I will be my own king and I will be my own God. They don't want to submit 
to God's design. His design for these things has been cast aside and trampled underfoot as our society seeks moral autonomy and freedom from what they think are the shackles of God's commandments and authority. A couple weeks ago in our high school group, we opened up Psalm 2 and we actually read the same exact thing when we hear of the nations raging and the peoples plotting in vain and the kings of the earth setting themselves against the Lord and His anointed and their cry together is that they're going to break off the shackles that God has put around them to burst the bonds away from them. irony of this is that in pushing away these so-called shackles of God's authority, they're actually submitting themselves to slavery and rejecting the freedom that is only found in Jesus Christ. One commentator said that as people follow the trails of their own passions and desires to see where it leads, it leads to a perversion of God's design, debauchery, and sin on account of which the wrath of God is coming. In Psalm 2, it says of the very people that are opposing the Lord and His anointed that if if Jesus just asked the Father, the Father would grant to Jesus the nations as an inheritance so that Jesus with a rod of iron can crush them. But, says all who turn to Him, All who pay homage to Him, all who worship Him and take refuge in Him will be blessed. Any who come to Him in faith for salvation will be saved indeed, but any who reject Him will face His wrath for their rebellion. So for, this, for anybody in this room that has yet to come under the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ, I would urge you to flee the wrath to come. And there is only one way to do it. And it is to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ the one that again offers freedom, the one that again offers new life, the one who can make you a new creation and cleanse you and call you righteous and perfect even though He knows the depths of your deepest, darkest secrets. And the worst thing that you've ever done, God says the sacrifice of My Son was enough to cover that. His blood was sufficient. His blood was was sufficient. Ryan, Natalie, why don't you guys come back up? We're going to worship with a couple more songs. Before we do, it was so cool. I stepped backstage a couple minutes before service started. Ryan, Natalie, we're we're just praying. And, And Natalie mentioned that there was just something pressing on her heart. And she was just talking about how we it's we feel unworthy to come to the Lord. Knowing our shortcomings, we feel unworthy to worship. I feel unworthy to teach. 
But the reality is that the blood of Christ has made us whiter than snow. She was saying that we are a group of sinners united under the grace and blood of Jesus Christ. And if, listen, if you haven't submitted your life to Christ, the Bible says that the wrath of God abides on you. But listen, the door has been opened, a way has been made for all sinners to come and be saved. The call is out there to come to Jesus. Look, as we address topics like gender roles and, and marriage, if leadership and, and, and being a helper and all this stuff, may, maybe you're in this room, and I acknowledge this is hard stuff, maybe you're in this room and, and you struggle with same-sex attraction. Maybe you're in this room and, and you're confused about gender identity. Maybe you've started to adopt some of the ways of thinking of the world and it's left you just confused and without purpose. Maybe you're in this room and you're a man who feels like you're failing as a father, a husband, or a leader. Maybe you're a woman in this room that's going, oh man, I don't know if I've been a good helper at all. For every single person in this room, I would say if you feel like you're not measuring up, welcome to the club. But we have an opportunity this morning to come under the Word of God and to submit to His authority and His perfect design for the people that He has made. We have an opportunity here to come and repent and confess our sin to the Lord knowing that He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't care what it is you're wrestling with. I don't care what it is you're struggling with or what it is that you've done. If you fall down at the feet of Jesus, He will forgive you and you will be showered with love and grace again and again as you continue to come to Him. So the call is simple. Come to Jesus and experience the grace of a loving God. Turn from sin, come to Jesus and experience the fullness of what He has intended for His people before the world began. Let's pray. God, we, we honor You this morning. If, if we can just be honest for a second, God, there are so many things in the Scriptures that are actually, that, that push against the flesh, that are hard to read. Maybe they don't make logical sense to our finite minds, but as an act of worship, we humbly come before You and we bow down to say that not our will, not our way, but Your will and Your way. We trust You as the Creator. Would you do a refining work in your people? This morning, God, would you, would you save the person in this room that is yet to give their life to you and trust in you as Lord and Savior? Again, Lord, would you encourage the downtrodden and downcast this morning? We trust you, God. And we rejoice even now as we sing that though our sins are many, your mercy is more.